Okay, let's go to God in prayer as we commit to Him uh, our hearts and our souls and that we may truly understand His warning to us. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that you will help us to understand your word and that we will take it to heart and take it all seriously, uh, that we will not think of it just as another story, another piece of entertainment, but it is rather your word which uh, has the force and the power of God behind it. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, it was uh, 1999, and uh, I was in my second year of theological college, when I remember bumping into a, a classmate of mine who was from England. And uh, this classmate of mine was really uh, shaken up. He was all white and everything. So I asked him, well, what's wrong with you? What happened to you? And he told me that uh, his pastor from the church, which had sent him to, um, to study in theological college with me, had just resigned. And I said, what happened? And apparently, uh, this pastor, who was very well known and uh, quite prominent, had announced that he had been secretly having a homosexual relationship with someone else and had decided to leave his wife and their children to go and live with another man. And so my, uh, my friend, who uh, had worked under this man and was part of his church, was really shaken up. You know, his faith was affected he, he was really unwell from uh, that news. He, he was just t- totally shattered. A few years later, I spoke to uh, one of uh, my best friends at Theological College, and uh, he told me that uh, he had left Theological College, he had finished a year after me, and he had gone to become an associate minister of a church. And again, something similar happened. Uh, his pastor was in the newspaper, and uh, the reason why his pastor was in the newspaper was apparently uh, the newspaper found out that this uh, pastor, his minister, his head minister, was having an affair, not with one woman, not with two women, not with three women, but with four women in his church. He was the Tiger Woods of the, of the church, right? And my friend was totally shattered, right? Because here he was, he was working under this minister, he'd been serving under him, and he didn't know anything of this happening and he, he was really shaken up and that's why I was speaking to him on the phone. Now as we come to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 11 onwards, it's almost as if a similar situation is happening but it is not 2012 or 1999 or 2006 or whatever but it was 1120 BC, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, about 3,000 years ago. Now God, uh, if you look up here, had brought his people out of Egypt, out of the slavery of Egypt, and brought them into the promised land. And he had divided up the land into 12 parts for the 12 tribes of Egypt. But how did God's people respond to God uh, for this wonderful gift of saving them out of slavery and bringing them into the land of milk and honey and giving it to the people? Well, in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, which is the historical period just before 1 Samuel, it, it ends with verse 25, right? And this is what it says. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And basically, that's how it ends. And everybody was doing whatever they felt like they were doing. Uh, they served no one, they answered no one, uh, they, they owed no one their life. Uh, in the Bible, when it says everybody did as he saw fit, that's not a positive or praiseworthy or commendable thing, right? It was a, it was a, a bad thing. So in, in, uh, in Israel during those times, everybody was singing the Hebrew version of the Frank Sinatra song, I, was doing, I did it my way. Okay? So they were just doing their own thing, and they were not listening to God, they were not listening to God's leaders. 
And during that context, you sort of think that, well, the only way to change God's people's response to what God had done was from a top-down perspective. And today, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 onwards, we're introduced to the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. And who were they? Well, in verse 12, it starts off by saying this. Right? It says in verse 12, Eli's sons were wicked men, and they had no regard for the Lord. Now, who were Eli's sons? Uh, well, if we were reading uh, 1 Samuel through all the way from the beginning, right at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, we're introduced to Eli's sons. And Eli's sons were Hopni and Phinehas. Okay, Hopni and Phinehas. Now, those are not very common names for people today. And you will see why. They were both priests, but they were called wicked men. Now, usually, when you think of the word priest, you associate priests with the words holy, upright, honorable, righteous, blameless. But here, right in verse, chapter 2, verse 12, right at the beginning of the introduction of Israel's leaders, they are called wicked men. Now, wickedness, or wicked, uh, hasn't got the power that it has in its original language. I mean, just a few weeks or months ago, my family kept saying, let's go and watch this play called Wicked. You know, there's this play called Wicked. And I was like, why would you watch a play called Wicked? Right? And, um, you know, in Harry Potter, I, I presume that's how they speak English in England now, you know, if something is wicked, what does it mean? It means something's really cool, right? Really impressive. But that's not what the Bible is saying here, right? He's, they're not saying that Eli sounds really cool people, okay? They were saying that they were really wicked people. In fact, this word is very rare in the Bible. It, it actually is, the, the other time that is used before this is to describe these people who were homosexual rapists. Right, so in Judges chapter 19, right, it says, uh, while these people were enjoying themselves in the house, some of the wicked men, the same word of the city, surrounded the house, pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. So this is the description of the priests, the leaders, the spiritual leaders of God's people during this time. This is hardcore, extreme, off-the-charts wickedness. Now, why were they wicked men? Well, they're wicked because they had no regard for the Lord. Uh, for those of you who are using the ESV translation, it says they did not know the Lord. It, it might mean that they, had, they, they might have had knowledge about God, they knew the laws of God, but they had no relationship with God. They did not acknowledge Him. They didn't care for Him. They, they couldn't care. They had a very bochup attitude to God. Right? They couldn't care less about God. And in verse 13 onwards, we are given one illustration of why they were wicked and why they had no care for God at all. In verse 13 it says, Now it was the practice of the priests of the people that whenever anyone offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now in those days, the priests were a very privileged class. Okay? Uh, they were very special. They didn't have to work in the fields. They didn't have to work under the hot sun. They didn't have to plant crops. They didn't have to tend to the goats. They were given a very special place and God said, because you are my priest, I will supply you your daily needs. And uh, it was quite uh, a generous provision. In Leviticus chapter 7, right, next slide, 
It says there that uh, there were different sorts of offerings okay, in Israel, but from the fellowship offerings, they could have the breast or the thigh. So I presume it's like, you know, wow, you know, chickens or whatever, right? They could have the breast or the chicken or the thigh. And that was a regular share for the Israelites. But not only that, it says there that whenever the Israelites sacrificed a bull or a sheep, the shoulder of the bull, I, I don't know what part that is, the, the jowls, which is the cheek, right? I don't know why you eat the cheek of the bull. And the inner parts, all the, the, the intestines, I suppose, could be given to the priests. And not only that, you are to give them the first fruits of your grain, the new wine and oil, and the first wool from the sharing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them, and their descendants out of their tribes, out of all your tribes, to stand and minister in the Lord's name always. So this is a very privileged position. To, to be the leader of God's people, to be the priest, is, is, is a privileged position, and God has provided generously and very caringly for God's priests. But the problem is, Eli and Hobni, together with the servants, oh, sorry, uh, Pinehas and Hobni, uh, together with their servants, they obviously felt that uh, they were sick of the breast and the thigh and the shoulder and the cheek and the inner parts. They wanted, I don't know what other parts of the, you know, I'm not a connoisseur of meat, but obviously they felt they were sick of it. So they had their version of potluck, right? But instead of bringing the potluck, they got this thing and they stabbed into each of the pox and they brought out whatever food they want, right? It's like, a, it's like the, the ancient version of a, a jackpot machine, I suppose, and I'll see what meat we can get. But that was against God's people and it was against God's law. Because God said, look, this is good, good enough for you. I give you the breast, I give you the cheek, I give you the inner parts, I give you the, 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 the thigh meat, what else do you want? But they wanted more. But it gets worse, isn't it? Because in verse 15 it says, but even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, let the fat be burned up first, then take whatever you want. <clears throat> the servant would then answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it over by force. Now, it's not enough that uh, the uh, Pinehas and uh, Hobney and their servants wanted more variety in their meat. They also wanted meat which was not boiled. Because after you boil the meat to sacrifice it, there's nothing much you can do with it. Right? I mean, it's boiled, it's boiled, isn't it? And uh, when you really think about it, boiled meat doesn't taste so good, right? I mean, really, the only meat that tastes good is Maybe bakutela, right? Okay, but all other meats, you know, you think of. Okay, after this, you can go for lunch, right? You can go, you know, you think of char siu, siu your barbecue chicken wings, roast beef, medium rare sirloin steak on a hot plate, Korean hot plate, barbecue beef marinated overnight, teriyaki sauce, right? Baby back ribs, okay? Satay over charcoal. I mean, when you go to Ashton's and Botak Jones, right? You don't ask for boiled meat, right? Can you ask for roasted and grilled meat? And apparently. That's what the priests agreed with. No boiled meat for me. We only want it raw because we want to cook it and roast it ourselves. But that is not all, isn't it? Because it gets, you know, when you read it, it gets from worse to worse to worse because they said, look, not only do we not want it boiled, we want the fat. Now, in our health conscious day, we might think fat is no good. But actually, fat is one of the tastiest parts of, of the meat. I mean, like, 
the Makan Sutra guy, Sito said, right? I mean, we have Mee Pok without the pork pieces. It's not really Mee Pok. And you have a Chakutiao without the lard. It's not worth eating. Right? So, fat is really, really tasty. And they wanted fat. But the problem was that God had again said, this is not for you. The fat is not for you. The fat is only for God. Leviticus chapter 3, look at what God says very clearly. From what he offers, he is to make this offering to the Lord by fire. All the fat that covers the inner part or is connected to them, both the kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the covering of the liver, which he will remove from his kidneys. The, the, the priest shall burn them on the altar as food, an offering made by fire, a pleasing aroma. If you ever burn fat, right, it's really, really nice smell, right? All the fat is the Lord's. This is the lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Where, wherever you live, you must not eat any fat or any blood. So this rule about a fat-free diet didn't apply just to the priests, it applied to the, all of God's people. The fat was whose? God's. They were meant to burn the fat for God. But, instead of doing what the priest was supposed to do, burn the fat, they wanted to eat the fat. And uh, even today, 3,000 years later, these events are really shocking. Right? Uh, if it's not shocking enough for you, imagine if uh, at the end of the service, we, we have the offering, and, uh, and I ask why, why, you know? Can you go around to the offering bag and just help yourself to some of the money, right? Because, you know, we, it's ours anyway, right? And then, and then, and then you know, why comes and then he shows me all the offering. What, only $2 notes? Where are the, where is the $50 notes? Okay, why go and get the $50 notes from people? If they don't want to get it from, from people, just beat them up, right? And take their wallets. That's what's happening here, isn't it? That's what the priests were doing. And that's why in verse 17 it says, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, <clears throat> for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. And the word here, contempt, is the same type of word as no regard for God. They were like looking down and spitting on God. And that's the attitude that, that the priests had towards God. Then all of a sudden... In verse 18, the story is like interrupted, right? It's almost like a commercial break. But it's not really a commercial break. Because you, you go from this horror story of what Hobney and Pinyas are doing, and then you go all the way to Samuel. And Samuel's story is like a Disney story. right? It's like a children's story. About how every year, Hannah will come, and she'll make you know, a nice little Samuel, this nice little robe. And every year she would make a, a bigger robe and a nicer robe and a religious robe and everything. And they have a dinner once a year and they have a really good time. And then Eli, uh, Hannah had more children. And, and you sort of think, why, why, why does God tell us about Samuel here? Uh, how does it fit? I mean, we already hear about the priest, but, but why, why is he telling us this really strange story which doesn't fit at all with the type of story we're listening to about Samuel and his little robe? Well, I think part of it is to, is to, is to contrast the, the behavior of the true priest compared to what this little boy is doing. Uh, and as we look at it, this Disney story uh, is in a sense showing how Samuel is making Hannah really proud, isn't it? Because he keeps ministering, 
He keeps doing the right thing. But on the contrast, what comes next? Uh, Eli's sons actually bring him uh, shame and judgment and destruction. So Samuel here is a good son to Hannah. But Eli's sons are bad sons. They're very, very bad sons. And after that short interlude of a very you know, interesting but quite a you know, simple story, we come back again to Eli's sons and their sin gets worse and worse. And what's Eli's children's children doing now? Well, in verse 22, after that short Disney story, now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the woman who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he says, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people, right? So obviously it's not just once in a while, but the whole, the whole of Israel had heard of it. I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. So here Samuel has a good report. He's growing in favor, right? In God's sight, in people's sight. But Eli's sons, it's a bad report. Now what were they doing? Uh, they were women, but the women don't work inside uh, the tabernacle. They don't work inside the temple. They don't work inside the tent of meeting. They, work, they serve outside. Maybe they keep the grounds clean, or they, they welcome people, or they serve people in some way. And uh, Pinehas and Hopni, they, they were sleeping with them. We don't know whether they raped them, whether they seduced them. It just says they were sleeping with them. We don't know how it came about. But in the age of, uh, this is pre-internet blog time, right? Uh, but yet the whole of Israel knew about it. So it must have been so widespread and so scandalous okay, that, that it came to be so widely known. And they were making God and, and God's worship a laughing stock. Now, through these series of pictures, uh, episodes, snapshots, we see the state of leadership in Israel. And what is the state of leadership in Israel? It is bad, it is corrupt, it is fraudulent, it is a failure. Now, uh, we saw in the beginning, next slide, that uh, the temple was in Shiloh. Shiloh was in the middle of God's uh, country, and, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, that's where the laws were. It was supposed to be the center of worship, it was the center of learning. And this uh, place in Shiloh was basically very, very important. It was more important than the Presbyterian Church of Singapore. It was more important than BDPC, right? Because in Israel, there was only one place, one tent, one tabernacle, where they would come and worship and make sacrifices and where there would be uh, this teaching. And what Eli, his sons were doing, was worse than what that pastor in England did or worse than what that pastor in Sydney did because they were doing this in God's temple among God's people. So the question that I think we are supposed to ask as the people in Israel asked as they lived through this time as they read 1 Samuel was what is God doing? What is God going to do when evil comes and seems to frustrate uh, the plans, his plans for his people. What is, what is God doing to the evil and wickedness which is so pervasive among his people, even all the way to the very top, among his priests? And I think that's where uh, the second half of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 actually comes in. What is God going to do with this evil that has come and infected even the very highest levels 
of his people. Well, the first thing he says is in verse 25b, isn't it? Uh, and this is where the narrator makes a comment. And we must always pay attention when the narrator makes a comment because he sort of inserts himself into the picture. In verse 25b he says, um, His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, this is really quite a surprising thing. Right? It's really shocking, right? Because, you know, people think, okay, God is love. God is peace. God is this wise old man who wouldn't hurt a fly. But, but it says here that Eli's sons, Hopni and Pinehas, didn't listen. Why didn't they listen? Because God hardened their heart, isn't it? They did not listen for it was the, God, the Lord's will to put them to death. Now, how can this be, right? What is God doing here? I think there's a principle in the Bible where if a person is very hard-hearted and chooses a way of life and uh, they keep being warned and they keep rejecting God, then God says, I will harden your heart and confirm you your sin, which leads to judgment. Now, Eli's sons clearly had no regard for God. They had a very uh, bochap attitude to God. Many times they had no regard for God. They They didn't know God. They were contemptuous of God. And the Bible says that there's a certain sort of sin in the Bible, right? It's like there is an in-your-face sinning, a sinning with an attitude or a swagger, you know, a high-handed sinning against God. And that is what uh, was happening here to Eli's sons. In Romans chapter 1, it says the same thing, right? If you keep saying no to God and harden yourself over and over again, then God gives you over to your sin for judgment. So in Romans chapter 1, it says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness evil, greed and depravity. Now, the question that we, we should be asking, and I'm sure the Israelites are asking, is what is God doing with evil? Right? What is God doing with Eli's sons? What is God doing with Hopni? What is God doing with Pinehas? Why does He stop them? And God's answer is, I'm not stopping them because I'm confirming them in their sins so that they will be judged. Now, that's a lesson for us, isn't it? because God's character doesn't change. Uh, like a pastor once said, be careful that you keep saying no to God, right? Because in the end, God will give you what you want. Uh, Eli and Pinehas, you notice, and uh, Hopni, do you notice in the whole narrative, they never once say sorry to God. They never once say, it is my mistake. They never say, I was wrong. They never once say, it was my bad, right? They never show any guilt, never show any shame, never show any remorse. And God says, okay, if you are hardened and you are moving you want to reject me in this way, then I will confirm you in the rejection so that when your judgment comes, it will be clear you know, just how, uh, how firm you are against what is right or wrong. And I think that's a lesson for us because sometimes we think that you know, we, are, we are doing things and no one's finding out. We're getting away with our sins. Uh, we are, we're living against God in, in a way that is contemptuous against God and not giving Him 
regard or honor, and we think, well, what's God doing? God's doing nothing, alright? I'm still here, there's no ball of lightning, right? But maybe God is, is just doing that. He's allowing you to keep going on in your sin, so that on the day of judgment, it's there for everybody to see that you were hardened against Him. So, when people ask the question, what, what, is, what is God doing against Eli's sons? Well, God is saying, actually, I'm allowing them to sin in this way. I'm allowing them to, to act against me in this contemptuous way so that they will be hardened and they will come to death. The second thing God says comes through this strange person who has no name, but is just called the man, a man of God. So in verse 27, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people, uh, my people Israel? Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and your father's house would would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me will be disdained. Now, you notice who does the man of God come and speak to? Uh, he doesn't go to speak to uh, Hopney or speak to Pinehas. He speaks to Eli. Now, isn't that strange? Because Eli hasn't done anything wrong, right? It's, it's, it's Hopney and Pinehas who are sleeping around eating all the, the fat. Why does he speak to Eli? Because Eli was the priest. Eli was the father. Eli was the man in charge. Eli had the sign in front of his desk which says, The buck stops here. And what uh, God says is, Look, Eli... For generations I've made this promise to your family that I will look after you, you will always be praised, you will always be fed. But, look at what it says there in verse 30, Far be it from me, those who honor me I will honor, those who despise me will be disdained. See, God gave a promise to Eli's family. Now promises are given uh, as a gift, right? There are no strings attached, as we can see. He doesn't earn it, he doesn't work for it, it is a gift to Eli's forefathers. They said, look, you will be priest, you will serve me, and I will give you all these blessings. But Eli and his sons took God's gifts, and what did they do? They threw it into the garbage. They spat on it. They treated it with disdain and contempt. If you look at verse, um, uh, verse 29, why do you scorn my sacrifice? The, the, the word scorn there literally is the word kick out. Like you kick at a mongrel dog, or you kick out a, a stray cat. And that is how God sees Eli and his children treating him. They were kicking out at God. They, they treated him with disrespect. And God says, if you disdain me, I will disdain you. I, I will not. I will take away the promises that I've given you. Now, we don't know what Eli did when he spoke to his sons. Right? He says, why are you doing this? Did he say, you know, why are you doing this? Or did he shout, why are you doing this? And bang on the table, right? We don't know what he did. Whether he was very angry or whether he just said, ah, guys, why are you doing this, right? But what we do know is he did not take action. He did not stop his sons, Pinehas and Hobney, from serving as priests. 
he did not. He, he actually allowed them to continue serving even though he knew that they were doing all these bad things. So by doing so, God says, you are honoring your children above me. Because if you honored me, you would take them out of the priesthood and you would honor me. But instead, they honor, he honored his sons and allowed them to serve because they were more important to Eli. And by doing that, Eli himself was also a party to their sin. See, look at verse 29 again. For those of you who uh, have uh, your NIV, you'll notice that the footnote says that the you actually is a plural. Uh, Eli himself kicked out at God. Eli himself partook of what his sons were doing because he didn't take action. Some people say Eli's sons were wicked, but Eli was weak. He was weak. He didn't put God before his children. Now, it's the same for us, isn't it? When we, when we think of uh, this passage, uh, do we honor God above everything else? Or do we honor some other things? We, we must not presume on God. Okay, God gave me a promise, and He's bound by the promise forever and ever. He's my creator, He's my sustainer. He saves me in Jesus Christ. I can do whatever I want. Because God is very clear here, isn't it? If you treat Him and with, with an attitude which you kick out at Him and you despise Him, you disdain Him, and you reject Him, you, you, you treat His words like garbage and you just throw into the garbage bin, then God will take away His promises from you. I, I like what it says there, right? Far be it from me. God will not be held uh, uh, hostage, right? If we treat Him with contempt. And I think that's a very important lesson for us because God is not like that. We cannot treat God like garbage and expect that He will, he will say, okay, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can do whatever you want. Right? Because God expects us to treat Him with honor above all else. So God, what is God going to do about this bad leadership? Well, He takes down the wickedness and the evil of Eli and his sons, but He raises up somebody else, isn't it? Some good person to take the place of the bad. So in verse 35, the last part, the very last part of chapter 2, he says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mine. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one forever. Now, uh, what does God mean here? Who does God have in mind? Well, obviously, as we read, he means Samuel. Now, if you look at uh, the, the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's almost as if Samuel is in the background, right? It's like on the foreground is Eli, the chief priest, his sons, Hopney and Pinehas. They are the ones who everybody can see doing everything. And in the background, once in a while, in a glimpse, you can see Samuel walking around the background, right? He's like a, you know what, this minor actors at the back. You just see him walking in the back there, right? But then we know that God actually has in mind to use Samuel to bring about a priest who replaced Eli's priesthood. And that's what he means here, right? That's why Samuel has such a part to play in between all the bad episodes that are reflected for Eli's sons. But, there's an interesting uh, phrase here, isn't it? Because it says, He will minister before my anointed one, always. Uh, for your ESV, for those of you who have ESV Bibles, it says forever. But we know that that's not possible because Samuel dies and the priest that comes uh, next dies as well. So what God is actually saying here, there is an eternal solution to bad and corrupt spiritual leadership. 
there is a forever solution which God has in mind, not just the next generation, next generation, but He's looking for a permanent solution to this bad leadership. And obviously, it comes 1,000 years later in the person of Jesus. Because in Hebrews chapter 7, right, Jesus is said to be the perfect priest, the one who is permanent, the one who gives His own body to die for His people. Now, there were many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office, but because Jesus lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him, because He always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, He does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So what God is doing is he's judging the wicked, he's bringing down the wicked. He might be confirming them in their sins, withdrawing his promises, but he's, he's judging the wicked, but at the same time he's continuing his plans by saving through Jesus Christ, his permanent eternal high priest. Now what does that mean for us? Well, sometimes when we come to the Bible, we always ask the question, what does it mean for me, right? Uh, because, you know, as we all know, uh, the most important person of the, of the world is me, right? Not you, me. Okay? So we, when we read the Bible, we think like, oh, okay, what has it got to do with me? What has it got to do with me, right? But actually, when you look at this passage, uh, it's all about what God is doing, not about me. It's, it's, it's what God is doing, right? And God is actually judging the wicked and He's saving people through His high priest, Jesus. Now the question is, how are we going to be part of God's plan? How do we fit into all these things? Well, the only way we can come out right with God is to know this Jesus, is to have regard for this Jesus. You see, we are not to be like uh, Eli's sons who, who have knowledge. Some, some of us might have knowledge of Jesus, right? We know about Jesus, we know what He did, but do we know Jesus relationally? Do we know Him uh, in terms of giving Him honor? Because if we know Him, if we obey Him, if we truly have a relationship with Him, then we are on the right side of God. Then we are actually part of God's plan to be saved. And we will not be on the other side where we will be judged and confirmed in our sin. So as you sit here today and you look at this piece of history 3,000 years ago, God is still achieving the same purposes in this world. And all the more, we can see it through Jesus. But where do you stand? Do you stand on the side of rejecting God, of treating Him with contempt and having no regard for Him? Or are you on the side of His salvation, where the permanent high priest, which Jesus was spoken of a thousand years before His birth, was actually here to come to save us? If you know this Jesus, then you will be saved. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see that you are God who is in total control over time and history and space and that even though Eli's sons, Hopni and Pinehas, uh, did their worst uh, during their time of leadership in Israel, but yet you are in control, yet you were causing them to be confirmed in their sins so that they will be judged. And all along, even in the background, you were already uh, controlling events and bringing Samuel uh, to, to come and bring a new priest. 
But even further than that, you were looking forward to Jesus. And uh, even beyond that, to our time where Jesus would be our permanent high priest. So we pray that as we look at how you are an awesome God who judges sin and evil and wickedness and will uh, disdain and despise those who have contempt for you. So we pray that each and every one of us here will honor you and know Jesus to really regard him and acknowledge him in our lives so we will be saved and be part of your eternal plan to save people who love you. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.